Phil Town. And I'm Danielle Town. We're here to talk to you about investing and getting invested. Getting invested. Yeah, like tie it together with your values and your money and changing the world down the year, you know, 20 years from now. And how does Warren Buffett make so much money with so little <laughs> risk? And how do you buy $10 bills for $5? And why is the first rule of investing don't lose money? And the second rule of investing is don't forget the first rule of investing. Why? Jeez, all Why? of that in the next 45 minutes? No, we're not going to talk about any of those things. <laughs> we're going to talk about some more numbers. Yay! That's a sarcastic yay. Yeah, I know. Uh, amazingly, um, I think lots and lots of people who invest extremely well are not super fans of, of the numbers. And so what we're doing is we're, we're, we're shrinking down this huge pile of numbers into... A slightly growing pile. It started off with four. Yeah. And now we're going to add three more to it. Okay. But and I have to say... I'm not promising that's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Those four, they make sense. I, I think you've really helped create a, a picture, a rear view window picture yeah. of those numbers. So thank you. All right. You're well very done. welcome. Very welcome. I'm excited that you got a comfort with that because I know... From your Vedic education numbers, <laughs> math ain't your thing. But let's go. Let's go into the next piece of this. When when you have um, Charlie's view of the world, you basically are investing um, based on what you're capable of understanding. That's the first step. And if you're not capable of getting it, you, nothing else works. I Charlie mean, Munger. Yeah, Charlie yeah. Munger. So this is from the beginning of our podcast when we listened oh. to Charlie over and over describe the four principles of investing. In that antique podcast. In the <laughs> so long ago. Past, so long ago. <laughs> where where um, Charlie said there's really four things. you got to be capable of understanding. It's got to have an intrinsic characteristic that they give it a durable uh, competitive, competitive advantage. advantage. It's got to have management that you... It, it doesn't have to have. It would be nice. It would be nice. It's Charlie's words. <laughs> and, um, and I get that because it's, management is subjective. And you think you think you know people and you think they're going to do the right thing. Um, so it can be sometimes the case that they don't. And we want to have companies that we own where when they don't, the intrinsic characteristics of the company protect it from bad management. Like there's there's an old saying that you want to have a company that's so good that an idiot could run it because someday an idiot will, and that and it needs to survive that. And so when companies are 100 years old, I, there, there's always a time where somebody ran that company and they lost track of what it was all about, hmm. and somebody had to come back and dial it back in. And that's just the nature of it. I don't know if you knew this, but guess how many companies from 1960s S&P 500 are still in the S&P 500. From the 1960s to today? Yeah. So, like, what is that, 55 years? Uh, I'm going to go with 100 of the companies are still there. You're very close. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like I'm, I'm off a digit here, but but you're, it's about 83. Wow. 83, 85? Yeah. So that's... I mean, that makes sense to me. Companies come and go. Companies come and go. They, and a lot of that is companies that did well and got acquired. Sure. Uh, companies that merged with somebody else and used their name. <laughs> Lately, it's a lot of companies leaving America um, with mm. a, a kind of a reverse merger where they end up as a Dutch company and move their headquarters to escape oppressive American taxation. And I'm not saying that as a non-liberal. <laughs> I'm very liberal. <laughs> I'm a 19th century liberal. 
What? What? You don't think I'm I don't even want to touch this stuff. <laughs> we will never talk about another. Actually, let's talk all about it because we'll never talk about another number. <laughs> no, we won't. We, we, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely stay away from that. But I, I think that um, you have to realize that companies change over time. And usually the changes from a wonderful company are in the other direction. Well, I mean, I think people think of companies as this monolithic entity thing that just exists and makes money in a usually in an evil sort of way. <laughs> and companies are nothing like that. They're made up of people. They're a living, breathing mass of people. That's all a company is. They're people that run the product and run the manufacturing and run the services and it's all just people and who's there. And they can go away. It's not surprising to me at all that they go away quite regularly. I mean, look at when Steve Jobs um when Steve Jobs died, there was a lot of reason to suspect that Apple would lose its mojo. Oh, I think it has lost its mojo. I don't know. I think I Tim mean, I th- Cook is... I their stock price is probably okay. Yeah, it's done all right. I mean, it's not valued like it would be if Steve was around. Exactly, because... I mean, it's valued like it's like a garbage collection company. <laughs> it's just like nobody's putting a big number out there. Partly because it's so big already. Yeah. And it's hard to grow a big, big company. But partly because... You know, Steve was all about a kind of um, un, uncompromising vision, and, and he got it right. He just kept getting it right. Exactly. And it's so hard to believe that a company could get that ingrained in its culture because it's so individualistic, you know? So management's hugely important. To your point, it's hugely important. You know, managers come, and then they don't last forever. They're not made out of iron, and they, they retire. They die. And um, what Charlie's point was is you want a business that has such a strong character. The basics of the business are so fundamentally structured into it that management gets next to irrelevant. Hmm. Like, Like Charlie's favorite kinds of companies are companies where they don't have to ever reinvent a product. The product, they, they spend no money on R&D. So he would never invest in a Steve Jobs era Apple. Uh-uh. Neither would Buffett. I mean, think about this. Warren Buffett is best friends, like BFF, with Bill Gates at Microsoft and has been for years. Those guys vacation together. They hang out together. They do their Sun Valley thing together. It's amazing. Bill Gates asked Warren what kind of ring he should get his fiance to be proposed with. And Buffett said, well, I think you should follow my lead on that. When I got uh, engaged in 1953, three or whatever it was, he said, I got a ring that represented three months of my income. Was that zero? It was like 20 grand. <laughs> <laughs> and for Gates, it would be like... Just buy her a boat. They don't make Just a ring like ring. that. Yeah. <laughs> There's no such ring, right? Which is Buffett was funny, but those guys are really good friends and, and they share a lot in common. I've seen them speak together on, on stage and... Um, they just really like each other. But he doesn't invest in Microsoft? Not a chance. Well, maybe that's why. Maybe he's too close. No, it's tech. And he just uh, doesn't feel comfortable coming up to speed on the on Microsoft's need to reinvent itself over and over again. Mm-hmm. Ironically, however, he invested in IBM. So, so explanation, please. Well, Microsoft builds stuff. They built software. Mm-hmm. IBM built hardware. IBM used to build hardware. 
IBM still builds mainframes, but it's gotten rid of its uh, other hardware divisions. It's, it's actually it's working on a chip, and it's got a mainframe. And it's gotten rid of its servers, it's gotten rid of its PCs, it's gotten rid of all that stuff. And, um, and what IBM now is, I think, to Buffett, is an enormous moat based on a switching moat. That is, they're in your back office of your business, and you're not getting them out. They are locked in there hmm. in a way that... So they don't have to reinvent themselves. They don't have to reinvent themselves. All they have to do is wait until somebody reinvents the wheel and then buy the wheel. <laughs> a lot of companies, yeah, follow that method. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what's all about for him coming into this thing. It's not a tech investment. It's a big yeah. moat uh, company that's got a, a switching moat. So, um, but be that as may, I don't know if I've got that right. But you can see the thinking going on there, right? I mean, oh, you, what, mean you don't know if you have it right that that's why he invested that's, in IBM. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, but for sure, um, when he's looking at a company like IBM, it's not all about Ginny Rometty being the greatest superstar manager in the planet, um, because IBM's going to be around past that manager. Mm-hmm. And so, management, um, on one hand, is in the way we're talking about it, is irrelevant if you really pushed it from what we're saying. And here on the other hand is, wow, they are the whole culture of the company and they change everything in the company and they're critically important. And so Charlie said, we'd like to have talented, honest guys. That's what we'd like to have. Sure makes our life easier. Now, I'm going to take it farther than that because that's Charlie's generation, okay? And that's how he and Buffett kind of go at it with the managers. They're not that critical. I'm kind of like, I want these guys to reflect my view of where the future is. I'm, I'm, I really, you know, the idea that you're a value investor is really you buy cheap companies when they're on sale. Mm-hmm. A values investor, I think, is another notion. A values investor is looking at companies based, uh, looking through the, the, the colored glasses of his own value set. So my friend Jim Cramer doesn't have a value set when it comes to money and investing. Jim thinks there's no place in investing for your values. So, for example, when Bill Ackman, I mean, for Jim, it's just all about pieces of paper and money. Bill Ackman, on the other hand, has attacked Herbal Life as being a company which rips off poor people and is like a locust going across a field. And when it's done with America, it moves to Mexico. And, and they're, they're, they're just going through this field of poor people, giving them false hope that they can break out of their poverty. And meanwhile, they're raking in billions, hmm. right? So I don't know that that's true. I'm not subscribing to that point of view. But Bill Ackman took that point of view, and it's a moral point of view. So my point here is that Jim Cramer attacked Bill Ackman for having a moral point of view. Hmm. He did a show for about making it. a decision based on that. Based on that, just when there's I'm no sure place in here. Only based on that, but pretty close. It really? was like so he, he thinks the company is going to make money in the future. He thinks it would be a good investment. He just won't make the investment. It's a good investment if you if you don't mind ripping off four people all over the world. Sorry, it's a profit creating investment. It's a profit creating machine. Okay. okay. And Ackman came in there and said, um, "This is no this this is a different category of short position." Right? A short position is one. You may not know what the heck I'm talking about here. Like if, if I want to short a stock, essentially what I do is I borrow it from the owner and then I sell it and have the broker hold the money. And what I owe the owner is the stock. And what 
the broker owes me is the money I sold it for. So if I can buy um, if I can buy Herbalife for fifty dollars, sorry, if I can sell Herbalife for fifty dollars by borrowing the stock and then selling it, um, and then buy it back for twenty, and then hand the guy his stock back mm-hmm. and I get the fifty bucks, that's that you can make a lot of money. So Bill Ackman took that short position. Doesn't mean he's right. I mean, Carl Icahn's another great investor, and, and so is Dan Loeb, and they both bet against him right after he did that short. They said, hey, Herbalife's a great company. It's going to make a fortune, continues to make a fortune, has made a fortune. And we talk about those four numbers. Yeah. Oh, man, Herbalife's got those four numbers in spades. Hmm. Absolutely fantastic. What Ackman's questioning is the moral character of the guys who run the company. And he's probably also betting that at some point that moral character is going to come into play in the profit generation of the company and the company's going to go down, right? No. No. In this case, he's got to be betting that. Isn't it some kind of um, multi-level kind of company? It's multi-level and his his view is it's a Ponzi Ponzi scheme. So there you go. That's what I just said. But the, the world's so damn big. I mean, they can go to China. They can go to India. They can go, they go. But he thinks at some point it's going to go down. Yes. And he... Okay, yes. That eventually you run because out of people. Because if he didn't if he didn't think that, he just wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't purchase it and he wouldn't short he wouldn't buy long and he wouldn't sell short. I don't know. I don't think I agree right? with that. No, I think that he thinks that he can bring pressure to bear on the FTC and force them to change the rules on herbal life. Oh, so he's making a regulatory bet. Yeah. It's a regulatory bet. He's going to the SEC with 136 slides and saying, these guys are defrauding all these poor Hmm. people. And you guys don't care because Mm -hmm. it's only a $200 deal Mm -hmm. per person. But out of all these people who have come in and become distributors in this company, 90x percent of them fail. And Herbalife is coming back and saying, whoa, 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 hold on. 90x percent of them are not failing. 90x percent of them are coming in to get this stuff wholesale. And they're, they're actually just retail buyers that are signing up for a business in order to get a wholesale price. Then Ackman comes back at them with his argument, and then they come back with theirs. Yeah. Back and forth, right? But Ackman is trying to get this moral judgment to force the government to have a regulatory change that says, we have redefined the deal, and you're out. And then to have its stock price oh, reflect that, oh, which is why he has shorted it instead exactly. of doing nothing. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and there, there's there's an instance where values are the whole game, mm-hmm. yeah, right? So that's interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and it's a real battle of the big guys, you know. And I'm not going to get in the middle of it. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure who's right. I, I got friends on both sides. So, um, but here's the point. Management um, in some companies is near as you can get to irrelevant. Like anybody could be running that company. Um, they're not trying to do anything brilliant. I mean, seize candy, seize candy. I'm not knocking the guys who, not, <laughs> who are running seize candy. And I don't mean management is ir- to, to say management's irrelevant is not to say it isn't doesn't require skills and talent and hard work. It does require all those things in any company, as any entrepreneur knows. What is it is to say is that. The company's not based on that. The intrinsic characteristic that makes that a great company isn't the manager. Hmm. At Apple, the question was, is it Jobs? Yeah, can it even survive? Can it even survive Steve leaving? Because it almost didn't once already. Exactly. We've already got that right in on the wall. Yeah. So um, 
what so Charlie and Warren and I we all like intrinsic characteristics that don't depend on management. Now, having that's for the end of it for those guys as long as management's honest, right? They don't like dishonest managers and Warren had one not long ago and fired the guy. So apart from honesty and and some talent, I want to go to the next step is what are they doing in the world? How do they run their business to affect all of the other key things that I'm interested in? Like I love to be an owner of a business where the employees are like over there, Rancho La Puerta, Mm -hmm. that we were talking about last time, where the employees have been there, some, some of them in their family for 70 years. It's extraordinary if yeah. you think about it. The yeah. commitment they have to that organization and the level of success they've had financially, in consciousness, in health. I, I spoke to a couple of them. They've got these two beautiful women who are twins, and I think they're 57. And I'm going to tell you right now, when you go over there, you're going to think they're 30. Hmm. I'm serious. You look one foot apart from them and look them in the face, and they're 30. Nice. And both of them are 57. So there's a there's an intangible benefit to working there of great, robust health and, and joy in your life and happiness in your life. You know, you can't put a price on it, right? So there's a quality to the values management has or doesn't have that I think is where we're going in the world. And I think your generation is more aware of that and more conscious of that and more intent about what does my life mean, you know, Great, I got a job, but what does it mean? Do I love getting out of bed in the morning? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to. I mean, we're so fortunate that our society is so utterly developed that that's the level we can think on now. We don't have to worry about shelter. We don't have to worry. I mean, speaking in large generalities, right? We don't have to worry about shelter or food. We're going to be okay. We've got our phones and our TVs, and generally in the U.S., we're doing fine on those fronts. So we have the ability to think about these higher level um, parts of life. Okay. I'm going to push back on that a tad. Okay. Because, I, you know, this is the river guide coming out here. But there's a book that was written not too long ago about the Comanche called, I think it was People of the Summer Moon. I might have that a little wrong. But basically it's written about a history of the Comanche people um, who were, interestingly enough, pushed almost off the face of the earth by all the other tribes because the Comanche were little. And if you go fight somebody for your hunting grounds where there's a lot of buffalo and they're a lot bigger than you are and it's like sticks and arrows and, you know, hand-to-hand stuff and you're little, you lose. Mm -hmm. So they got driven into the Wind River Range up by where we lived. And they were there in the 1500s. And then the, the Spanish horse, the Andalusian, which got loose became a Mustang and worked its way up into the Wind River Range by the 1600s. And so here you have this people who couldn't compete on foot in battle. So they figured, wow, we better figure something else out or we die. And they figured out how to battle on the back of a horse and they dominated everybody. They just blew out everybody and they just opened up the whole plains, took over, worked their way all the way down, pushed the Apache into into Arizona. Um, and drove the whites out in front of them, the European settlers coming out, the Mexican settlers coming up, drove them all the way down back into Mexico and back over toward Galveston and, and cleared out of Texas. So all of where all that oil is now, that was all Comanche country. Hmm. And they held it for 170 years. Wow. I know. Who knew, right? I didn't know any of that. Yeah. I know. It was mind-boggling. But here's my point. Yeah. 
those guys loved their life. They did not want to convert to anybody else's life. And the author's contention is they were the freest human beings on the face of the earth. Maybe more free, talking about the males anyway, were more free than maybe anybody's ever lived ever and ever will again. Okay. So point being that primitive people, we say primitive. Well, yeah, I would not say that they're primitive. Well, let's call them... I would say that those free, as you said, those free men who could do what they wanted had their food and their shelter taken care of, right? By that point, they owned all of that, or, you know, owned. They they held all of that land. They did. They held all that land. They had a massive empire. Thousands of horses. They're doing fine. Yeah, but, and they weren't nine to five, that's for sure. So they... Right. They... They were able to make that happen. They weren't slogging it out. Right. I think we're saying the same thing. Okay, I, I think we are too, but here's my point. is we, We've all come from that person. We've all come from that ancestor. And we've moved up through the chain of evolution to co- come away from being warriors into being farmers, and herders, gatherers, uh, ultimately into becoming a huge sales force that sells sugar water. Oh, so you're saying that our lives in corporate America is actually going backwards. In a strange kind of... And so we are trying to recreate the original freedom. Yeah. Original, you know, in quotes. See, because a a warrior's life, I mean, every Comanche person's life, male, female, was incredibly meaningful. You had to pull your, your weight for the tribe. And so today... We're trying to find that meaning. And I think your generation has really decided to just find it in your work. Find it. If you don't find it in your work, move to until you do find it in your work. Kind of is yeah. what I'm hearing. You think I'm right? Absolutely. I think it's hard. But I think people are really trying. And it's something that's very um, talked about and people are very conscious of it. What do you think? Are you, do you find that in your work as a lawyer? That I'm satisfied by? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think because I get to work with startup companies. I think if I were doing some different kind of law, I would not like it as much. But yeah. um, but I love the clients I work with, and cool. I love getting to help people start companies and create something that they're excited about. Cool. What about this podcast thing? You like this? Eh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I love our podcast, Dad. I know. I mean, it's like. It's like you want to get up in the morning, you want to put your feet on the floor, and you want to say, I love this day, I love yeah. this life, thank God for my life. That, that would be wonderful, right? And, it, and the interesting thing is it's not that dependent on money. And, and yet what you said right. is true. I mean, we're making no money from this podcast. So, right. so it still <laughs> makes I, our life. But of... I love doing it. I think, you know, it's something we can do together, which is sweet. Really awesome. And it's something where I feel like we're putting something good into the world. Yeah. Especially you, but it's fun for me to get to ask you questions. Honestly, this wouldn't be this without you. Aww. This is, I think this is more about you than about me. Well, I think it's about people like me who who want this information, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, and then it's also personally very helpful to me and just me alone because I'm trying to learn this stuff. So I, it's it's hitting all the levels for me. I think we're hitting on something that's kind of key here. It's like that you know we're talking about managers and having their values, but just as investors, I mean, we don't want to make this a slog. We don't want to make investing you know metaphorically like getting out of bed in the morning and hate your job. Yeah, exactly. Investing should be fun. No, and the thing is, it has to be, or else we won't do it. Exactly. I know the I millennials won't. will not. I mean, I'm, all, do I'm it. already not doing it. So, <laughs> so our job on the podcast is to get you doing it. Exactly. And and this is. I a figure real... if I can do it, 
if I can find a way to enjoy it genuinely, not just fake enjoy, like, okay, I'm not hating this, mm -hmm. um, then other people can too, because nobody likes it less than me. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. And part of what I love about it is that I love putting my money where my mouth is. Hmm. Part of that is figuring out where my mouth is. <laughs> right? I mean, once you figure out where your mouth is, it's not that hard to find companies that match you up. But learning what our values are, learning what's important to us, is not all that obvious. I mean, sometimes, you know what? We think of values as what we say they are. You know, like, my values. Like, com companies do this all the time. Mm, mission statement. Heinous bastard mission statements. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They are... So on my list of pet peeves, <laughs> this laundry list mission statement of Boy Scout virtues right. is right. just horse crap in so many companies. And what does it do? It tells the employees that the people who run this thing are lying bastards <laughs> because the employees know those guys aren't living any of these values, hmm. right? Yeah. In some of these companies. And so the companies that really walk the talk, those are fabulous to, to invest in. And, and the reason is for two, two really good reasons. First off, they don't need so much management. Hmm. Manage, the word manager comes from manacle to, to control, <laughs> right? And these companies are more leadership driven where there's values and a direction that then people get behind and they can make their own mind up based on those values about what the company should be doing in their area of the, of the company. So... You know, values-driven companies have less need for management layers, less hierarchy. They can be flatter organizations with less cost, hmm. um, more right decisions, less wrong decisions, you know, less U-turns. Um, there's a huge benefit to companies to be value-driven and or values-driven. And, and, uh, and I love investing in them because they, have, they can have much higher profit margins. So what are these numbers that you mentioned that somehow tell us all of this tell us something about hard this. numbers that tell us soft information? Yep. Well, I know we're going to get there. Um, so let me tell you the other reason I like these kind of value-driven companies is because they get to hire a lot of really great people who are really driven to make this thing happen in the world. Mm -hmm. And they're out there working 60 hours a week. And the benefit comes ultimately to the owners from all of that effort and genius and talent. You know, I... I keep thinking about this story of a guy, you know, on Sand Hill Road near near uh, Stanford University, Palo Alto. Yeah, Sand Hill Road is where all the, well, a lot of the VCs are. Exactly. It's where the VCs are. So imagine some guy is out there raising money, and, and after he gets done talking to the VCs, he gets an engineer he's trying to, uh, trying to recruit from another Silicon Valley company. A really key guy and he walks him up on the other side of the road from all the VCs there's this hill and you get to the top of it kind of like a you know it's got short grass and it's all brown in the summer and stuff and you get up to the top of it and you look over down on your left is Stanford University but down below in the bottom of the hill is a beautiful ranch and I mean it's stunning you know the fencing the pool the Porsche all that stuff is there really valuable land and this guy goes he says, look, Bob, if you join my company and you bust your ass and, and, and we work together and, and we make this happen, I want you to look down there. Look at all of that. If you do that, all of that will be mine. <laughs> point, point being, 
values in a company from the management team on down can really affect who you got working there. So what we want to do is figure out how would we know objectively and subjectively whether these guys are good guys by my view of what a good guy is. Okay. How do you know that? So let's start with just sort of the subjective side of things. We can read about them. A lot of these people have books written about them. There's certainly articles written about many, many people. So let's just assume for a second you know how to Google and you go over to Wiki. Mm-hmm. And you Google just Wiki the guy's name or her name, and bam. If you're looking at a significant public company, they will have a Wiki article. And it, it will have all kinds of links at the bottom in, in the bibliography or whatever you call it that will link you to articles. Yeah. about that guy yeah. or that woman. That's a great place to start right there. Because the business press is full of people who are, you know, are going to suck up to a CEO to get an article written, but there's an awful lot of them who won't, who are really trying to dig out something that's interesting news about this guy. So if you were to look up John Mackey and read a wiki article, you'd come down to an article in Wired 2.0, and it is pages about John Mackey, all about his background as a socialist and his conversion over to a big Ayn Rand fan and becoming an independent libertarian and how that affected his company and and now all of his stakeholder stuff. It's all there. So do your basic like Google wiki search. Yeah. Yeah. Once you've looked at the numbers, don't need to do this if the company doesn't qualify. Like don't waste your time. Right. Okay. Don't waste your time. Move on. So that's kind of a way to get out. That the sounds soft like stuff. to me. That sounds like the fun part. It's like gossip. Like <laughs> I get to like find out what's going on with these people. It is. I'd rather do it before the numbers, honestly. <laughs> oh well, fair enough. And I tell you, you find out when you look at the biographies of these CEOs that, man, alive, the path less traveled by, is probably the one that ends up in the C-suite more often than not. It's like <laughs> these guys are typically not straight down the Harvard Business School path. You know, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Yeah, it all looks so clear in hindsight, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how they got there. <laughs> oh, yeah. so obvious. Well, I'll tell you, you should have majored in fonts like Steve in Jobs. Fonts. I should have <laughs> taken that Sanskrit <laughs> class. So you, you got to understand that that part of the research is fun and it's subjective, and you're trying to get an idea. I like this guy, whatever its value set, and it comes blowing out at you. If they're a value-based investor or, or rather CEO, they are going to tell you. Hmm. You know, so that'll be in those articles. Um, you're trying to get an idea of the success of the CEO in the past. Has this guy run businesses that failed after he left and what happened, you know, hmm. or did she? Um, but mostly you're going to have good. They got there because they're good. They're good at something or they wouldn't have gotten to the C-suite. C-suite is CEO, C-suite. Also, the chief financial officer. It's the chief, whatever. It's the chiefs. It's, it's the chiefs. Yeah, yeah. It's the chiefs, the C-suites. So, and it's not S W E E T S. It's like office, <laughs> office suite. <laughs> like I imagine it, like all the important I'd spell people it if I knew how. are in a corner somewhere. S U. They don't want to talk to the other people. Exactly. Yeah. Less and less. That, is that it is happening? true. Less and less. Less yeah. and less. Which I think is a good thing. Me too. So, in fact, we're over at our marketing partners, and I'm looking out here, and they've just got a big bullpen. Everybody's in it. Yeah. Although I have to say, as a total introvert, I walked in and saw it, and I was like, "Oh God, this would be so hard. I couldn't handle it." <laughs> but if it's everybody culture, should go read "Quiet," which is an amazing book and life changing for it us about? introverts. It's about introversion and how introverts actually 
can create good in the world by our very fact of introversion. And it's not something that we should be ashamed of and not something that we should try to work around, but it's something that should be celebrated and that we can use. Wow. Well, I've, I've, to, I've talked your of a, ear off about this book already. Well, I, know, isn't it, I'm I just think it's an oxymoron it. that an introvert would talk your ear off of anything. <laughs> just as, <laughs> all right, we'll leave it at that. Because I want to get to the objective side of that management. That was a good one, though. Thank you. <laughs> we get to the objective side of management, um, and we look at three numbers. So I promise three numbers. Here they are. You okay. ready? Yes. Because I know ready. you've been excited waiting. Oh my gosh. For the numbers. So happy. Here they are, three more numbers. And these are very good indicators of management's management's focus, let's say. Okay? Mm -hmm. So the first one is debt. Okay. Debt is very important because debt means leverage. The company is like, like if you have a lot of debt in your life, just like a company, then you're more fragile. You're more apt to have problems if things don't work out just right. So if you lose your job and you've got a tremendous amount of debt and no money in the bank, it's really, suddenly it's a crisis. If you have no debt and even a little money in the bank, you, can, you have a cushion to get to where you next have to be. And you might not be able to see that in the, in the four numbers we discussed already. You right? might actually see better numbers because of debt. Because they're using it. They're using leverage to ram things up, put more powder in there, and fire a bigger gun. Yeah, okay, so this makes sense. So you got to look at it separately. Yep, got to look at it separately. So debt. The amount of debt that I think is okay is about three years or less of earnings. Okay. So if theoretically they could take all of the earnings and pay off all of the debt in three years, they're probably not over leveraged uh, badly. So some debt might be okay for some kinds of companies. All right. I want to go on to the next one, but sometime we should talk about why you think three years is the magic number. Um, I mean, think about it from a person's point of view. You know, if you have, let's say you're earning um, $100,000 a year and you've got $20,000 a year, you're banking every year. It's going into the can. Okay. You're saving twenty grand. Yeah. All right. So, and let's say you have $60,000 of debt. You can see that you know, in a reasonably short period of time, you could get rid of it. So it's just kind of like a general, like, all right, yeah, it's, it's just not general. too long, it's not too short. Okay, yeah, got it. exactly. Okay, so what's the second one? All right, the second one um, and the third one are variations of the same thing. And that is, if I give you my money into, into this company to run this company and make money with it, how big a return are you giving me on my money? So let's think about I could give the federal government my money, put it into a treasury bill, and they will pay me, over the next 10 years, 2.5% a year. So if I give them $100,000, they'll pay me $2,500 a year. That's called um, the interest on my, tr- on my bond, mm-hmm. but in business terms, it's called return on equity, mm-hmm. ROE. We want to write that one down. I think Warren Buffett thinks that's probably the single most important number you can look at in a company to determine if it's well-managed, ROE. And I don't know for sure because Warren keeps it pretty close uh, uh, close to his vest how he manages the companies, but the rumor is that his CEOs are compensated with bonuses based on increasing return on equity. Hmm. So what that means is what? That, well, return on equity is 
you take the earnings of the company, so let's say $10,000, and you divide it by that equity number we talked about a couple of time podcasts ago. So if you have $100,000 of equity and you've got $10,000 of earnings. Which we call book value. Which we call book value. Same thing. Right, okay. same thing. So if you've got $10,000 of earnings and $100,000 of equity, your ROE, return on equity, is 100,000 divided into 10,000, 100 divided into 10, 10%. Okay, 10% is the minimum. Hmm. Okay. And 15% is considered really good. So 10%, we feel pretty good about it. 15%, we feel like, wow, this is a really good company. Now, what that means is they're making 15% a year on them on your money. If you own the whole company, the equity is yours. You could shut it all down tomorrow and take the equity. But you won't because these guys are making 15% a year on it every year. And if you shut it all down, you take the 100000 put it in a T-bill and make 2.5%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, oh, hell no, I'm going over here where these guys can really crank it up. So this is something about investing in a business that people don't realize is that businesses are categorically different kind of investments than anything else, different than real estate, different than gold, different than treasury bills and bonds. Businesses can crank up your rate of return massively. I mean, it's not uncommon for a business to be making 25% return every year on your money you've got left in there. That's not uncommon? It's not uncommon. IBM is running like 35% per year on the, on equity that's in there. Wow. Stunning numbers. And you just go, wow, this is a money printing machine. And the number to look at to see what kind of money printing machine this is, is ROE, return on equity. Now the cool thing about that one, it's not a growth number and they do publish that on almost every Website, MSN Money, Yahoo, everybody's got ROE. Wait, we're not looking for a growth rate on this? No, this is just a straight up number. It's okay, in 2014, you made $10,000 earnings, you have $100,000 of equity, you get a 10% return on equity. And how'd you do in 2013? Oh, you had a 10% return on equity. And in 2008 and in 2005, and you see this long history of years, and every year these guys make 10% like clockwork. Why aren't we looking at a growth rate? Because it's not about, you're not trying to grow um, um, earnings, you're not trying to grow cash. What you're doing here is asking, if I put the money in this bank, what do they give me back in terms of a percentage? Okay, maybe I misheard you, but I thought you said Warren Buffett compensates his CEOs based on if they're growing the return on equity. Oh, Oh, okay, gotcha. All right, so... Dang, you listened so carefully there. Oh. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Um, all right, so let's start with this. The, the basic thing is that the return on equity is not going down. Okay. They're maintaining a solid return on equity. And let's say they're doing really good, which was what number? 10%. 10% is good. Oh, really good is 15%. 15%. So this is a company making 15% a year. So the first thing I think Warren's looking at is, you know, don't let it go down. Uh-huh. All right. And if you can make it go up, that'd be awesome, right? All right, so um, let's take a look at how somebody might make it go up in a minute. But first, let's just understand that if they can sustain a consistent 15% return on equity year after year after year after year, and it isn't going down, then they get a gold star. Okay, so it's not so much about growing it every year, it's about keeping, keeping it. it at the really good level. Yes. 
That shows us a well-managed company. And let me tell you, it's, a, it's really challenging to do that. And the reason it's really challenging is because CEOs want to grow their businesses. CEOs in lots of companies tend to be really top-line oriented. And now you kind of know what that means, right? Top-line oriented means you're oriented toward which one? Sales. Earnings or sales? Sales. Sales, right? All right. So if you're top-line oriented, it means because people judge the companies how big they are based on revenue, hmm. based on sales. Yeah, oh, these yeah, guys yeah. sell this much money. Right. right. So CEOs who you know went to Harvard and want to go to the Harvard Club and brag about how big their companies are would like to get the top line higher and higher. And there's a really easy way to do that if you're running a company. Buy somebody. Hmm. All right? Now, how do you buy somebody? Just like you buy a used car. Just like you buy a used mink coat at a garage sale. Just like you buy a new mink coat at a really expensive furrier on Fifth Avenue. You can pay lots of different prices when you buy a company. Good prices and bad prices. If the CEO is really interested in growing his top line, and he really wants to do that, he's going to be in a position of trying to get deals done. And if the guys who are selling know he really wants to do it, they're going to get a huge price out of that deal. In other words, he's going to pay too much. Mm-hmm. And when he pays too much, ROE goes down. Because what he did is he paid too much equity to get too small of an earnings. Yeah. And now the overall thing combined is worse than it used to be. I talk about this as a CEO becoming a trader. Hmm. He becomes a trader. Short-term perspective. Short-term perspective. He's going to build this big thing and get a Gulfstream 5 instead of a Gulfstream 3 and travel to Europe and see his plants. I mean, these guys, they're humans, <laughs> as you said earlier. Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. with all the follies and, and human value problems all humans have. And these guys just happen to be CEOs. And they can apply those kind of wicked bad values to their company. So here's a guy who is cutting his employees left and right to shrink his costs, to increase his earnings, at least short term, in order to increase his ROE because he's buying all these companies as an ROE is going down. So he's firing people in order to cover his tracks. Hmm. And that ROE starts going down, we start being very concerned about that company. So Warren Buffett rewards guys for ROE going up. Mm-hmm. Or staying the same, I don't know. Yeah. All right. So one way you can increase ROE is you can increase the earnings of the company. The other way you can do it is you can decrease the equity because it's the earnings of the company divided by the equity. And so what these CEOs do who work for Warren is they just refuse to increase the equity. So think about it. If they earn this money, they got, oh, I got $10,000 of earnings, and let's say it's also 10000 of free cash flow. You get that, and we'll talk about free cash flow in a while. But let's basically say you got $10,000, and it's real, and it's in the bank. If you keep it, your equity just went up from one hundred to 110000 And now it's harder next year. you got to earn more because you're dividing it by 110000 instead of 100000 to get an ROE. Mm-hmm. So now you got to earn 11000 to get the same ROE you got last year. You see, see why staying the same could be pretty hard over a long period of time. You keep have to grow those earnings because those earnings are sitting down there in your equity year after year. Well, one way to solve that problem is to give those earnings back to the owners. And they do that by issuing what's called a dividend. 
And a dividend is a cash payment out to the owners, which gets rid of this problem. So if I've got this 10,000 in cash and it's coming down to my equity and I'm running this company and I don't wanna be sweating bullets to keep my ROE high for Warren, the easiest way for me to do that if I don't need the 10 grand is to simply send the 10,000 out to Warren. I'm gonna send him a check, 10,000. So the dividends that are paid out are not calculated in that number? Right, they're taken out. Okay. And so some companies just pay that dividend out every year because they don't need any money to grow with. They can just do it based on what they've got in equity. And they send that money out. Warren loves us. Seas Candy is an example of that. He bought it for $25 million, And now every year, Seas Candy sends him a check for $65 million. <laughs> <laughs> so the Gosh. dividends can be gigantic on a company that doesn't even grow. They just grow at 4% a year. He raises the prices. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fascinating. We're going to get deeper into this. I know we're running out of time here. We're going to get deeper into the cash flow and, and dividends and how that changes your risk in the market and your risk with companies. But for now, let's say that um, ROE is really, really, really important. And we're gonna dive into it a little more next time as well. And then go into the third number of this section, which is called return on invested capital. And that's basically the same thing as ROE, except you add to the equity the money you borrowed. Hmm. So you add the money you borrowed and then divide that into the earnings and you get return on invested capital, which is partially why you can see we like companies with no debt, because then ROE and ROIC are the same. Oh, we like that. Yeah, we like that. Easier numbers. Now we've got six numbers instead of seven. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we better wrap it. I mean, gosh, we're going to dive more into this and more into the values of a CEO and more into the values of an investor here in the next one and uh, how these numbers tie together. Yeah, I can see how once we get comfortable with these numbers, hopefully it becomes, as we discussed and beat to death, another language (laughs) that just gives us a little bit of an entry point into that world, enough of an entry point. And I I promise you this, we're very near, if not all the way done, with all the numbers you have to know. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. This is doable. All right, then. Time to go play. (laughs) Bye. Hey, you guys, thanks for listening to Invested, the rule number one podcast. If you like us, please subscribe, please, and leave a review for us on iTunes. Uh, by the way, you can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and uh, also get more information about how to invest on your own by going to investedpodcast.com. Um, by the way, everything, this is important, everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion. And it isn't to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for entertainment and education only. I got to tell you, I really hope you enjoyed it. And I know Danielle does too. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.